This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 30. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. All right, today we're welcoming Rhett Diesner. Rhett is a professional um, psycho—sorry, uh, professor of psychology at Lewis Clark State College, whose main research area has been appreciation of beauty and morals. Welcome, Rhett. Thank you. Beauty is a very broad term. What do you mean by it when you talk about it? Well, you're right. Beauty is one of those undefinables, it's like truth and the good. Um, well, <clears throat> primarily it's an emotional response, generally to some kind of organization or pattern of stimuli. Uh, it's a very specific kind of emotional response, which brings out um, mostly positive emotions. Um, in a, a, like a religious or spiritual sense, I think of beauty as uh, the signs of God in creation. In a biological sense, uh, a lot of beauty, uh, noticing beauty or what we think of as beauty are things that have helped us adapt and survive. Wow. So how has beauty done that? Adapt, help us adapt and survive? Well, uh, if we start with the simplest level, uh, natural beauty, it turns out that uh, when we survey people, what they find most beautiful in nature are things like vistas, where you're standing up high and looking down low, and uh, it appears that that's a very uh, safe place to be. <laughs> uh, so more likelihood you'll, you'll survive and notice if there's uh, other dangerous humans or dangerous animals to avoid and thus spread your genes. We also are highly attracted to water, both uh, still water like lakes and rivers. Again, if you can see water, then the chances you're going to survive go up. And uh, we particularly find water scenes beautiful. Uh, we find uh, greenness and lush vegetation beautiful. And again, uh, this is our primary zones for where we got food to survive. So anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> right. Wow. Okay. So, um, so that answers part of what I wanted to ask next, which is why is beauty important? So maybe apart from the evolutionary perspective, why is beauty important to us? Well, uh, in a sense, it's one of the most fundamental human values. If you think about uh, the Western canon, uh, starting with the Greeks, the, the three um, fundamental values were truth, beauty, and the good. I just read a paper by a Chinese professor that claims those are also the th three fundamentals in uh, Confucianism, although when I read Confucius, I didn't notice that, but, <laughs> uh, but that well may be true. So in that sense, they're very, they're, beauty is one of, one of the most fundamental philosophical values that we have. Um, one of the greatest uh, living art philosophers, Arthur Danto at Columbia, he says that uh, beauty is an option for art, but it's not an option for, art, for a life well lived. So in that sense, what he's saying is the word that positive psychologists love, flourishing, it's going to be very difficult to have a flourishing life if beauty isn't part of it. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Right, yeah. I never thought about it that way. 
Have you done any work on how beauty and our relationship to it develops over the lifespan? Well, as a matter of fact, I have done something along those lines. It's just been accepted for publication of the Journal of Aesthetic Education. And uh, it was a, a cross-sectional study in which uh, myself and my uh, research assistants interviewed people from age 3 uh, to 81. And uh, so I don't have longitudinal data, but I definitely um, can track the different approaches that people have at different cognitive stages. I kind of approached it uh, from your great Swiss psychologist, uh, Piaget uh, type of approach, looking at how people organized beauty in their mind. And uh, you can, at least I found uh, consistencies uh, that sort of paralleled Piaget stages with uh, little children, uh, preschoolers, pre-operational children, tending to see beauty as anything that they liked. If they like it, they just confuse the word liking with beauty. And as we move into early concrete operations, children, uh, they start to have a, a kind of a primitive understanding of beauty, uh, which uh, I called pretty. They find things pretty. If it's pretty, they, they think it's beautiful. Um, as we move into early formal operations, um, people begin to be able to reflect on their own emotional states be able to take that outside perspective stance and they and they notice when they're moved by something we use that statement oh that moved me and this often becomes a, a typical sign of uh, something beauty beautiful to a person um, moving into late uh, um, formal operations um, people tend to uh, look at the they tend to have their own theory of beauty at that point and th this isn't a lot of people, actually. We're, ta I, we're talking maybe, if I estimate, 20% uh, of the adult population. They kind of have their own intellectual theory of beauty, and they want to find things that are beautiful that, that fit that. And then perhaps there's something like a principled level of beauty, where a person understands some kind of principle. Uh, what's my favorite one? Um, the principle of unity and diversity. And they realize that this is what uh, is a thread that unites all the things they find beautiful, whether it's scenes in nature or a piece of music or a person's inner virtuous beauty. They notice that the underlying principle of all of those is unity and diversity. There, I talked for a long play, a long while. Yeah, that's why we do these interviews. Um, people know me. They don't know you yet. Or they do know you maybe, but from other places, but not from this podcast. So please continue. Um, so what about, you know, you talked about how, for example, what's the difference between pretty and beauty? Well, uh, again, uh, for concrete operational children, they, they tend to be synonyms, but, um, I guess, uh, I don't want to just say sophisticated, pretty, I use the word pretty to indicate an unsophisticated, uh, view of beauty in which the child has gone beyond just, if I like it, it's beautiful, to they have uh, some sense. I mean, they, they can look at uh, a sunset and realize, well, that's really pretty, and that's different than uh, a cloudy, drab day. <laughs> and um, But they are not really noticing uh, their emotional responses to beauty. 
And by that, I mean they're, ha they're having emotional responses to beauty, but they're not be able to take that perspective where they can read their own emotions, so to speak. Right. So I'm wondering from what you're saying, it sounds, I mean, you mentioned the emotions, but it all sounds very cognitive to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm wondering, you know, because I wonder about this a lot, because I actually just talked about this uh, lunch with my cousin. And we just, you know, we talked about how some people, you know, say they're religious. But when you kind of make a little bit of a statement i said the statement what i said was basically when i go to central park i feel that i see everything that's beautiful about humanity and my relatives who are religious they just looked at me and said what <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> and 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 i just you know felt like you know whereas there is there are theories of you know religion spirituality and i imagine beauty and there's this experience of actually being touched um in a way that you could you know basically almost cry or i do actually so so i was wondering about the relationship between the ability to take perspective and reflect on beauty versus kind of the being able to experience beauty with your whole body Yes, yes. And what, certainly what I was describing in terms of uh, were really cognitive stages of understanding beauty, which, as you're saying, is really significantly different than a beauty experience. A beauty experience is a very emotional experience. It doesn't mean cognition isn't involved. I mean, it's a false dichotomy to try to divorce cognition from emotion. But certainly there's experiences that are primarily cognitive and experiences that are primarily emotional and the beauty experience definitely is uh, primarily emotional um right and, and so, now i said that i forgot your question <laughs> i said what what do you see as you you're right thanks by the way for pointing out that it's a false dichotomy um it's true um although i'm aware of that we tend to kind of confuse like yeah well, they are di like different poles of the creature, right? Yeah. I mean, clearly we have cognitive thoughts and they're not emotions. <laughs> yeah, so no, they're, you're right. They're no, I was, sorry, I was just talking about like um, the relationship between more of a cognitive understanding of beauty. You know, the research that you do on beauty, um, it, is it more of a theoretical, like how do people approach beauty or does it really also include the experience, this this whole you know, this whole, like whole body and probably soul kind of experience of beauty. <laughs> yes, it is a whole body and soul experience, I agree. Um, well, uh, my primary focus uh, has been sort of mapping the uh, personality that's engaged by beauty. So I have a measure which is called the engagement with beauty measure, and it's uh, designed to tap into three or four different aspects of categories that people find beautiful. Uh, natural beauty, artistic and design beauty, inner human or behavioral beauty, and recently I've been studying uh, people's response to beautiful ideas. And so the measure I use is basically a trait measure. So it, it, it actually asks, do you feel this way kind of questions. And uh, um, so some of the research has been found uh, has been just correlational. We've looked at uh, people that get engaged by beauty have a certain pattern of other traits that are associated with it. 
probably the strongest one is that they're people that have a lot of love in their heart. They tend to have uh, a love of all humanity, for instance. Um, my engagement with beauty scale correlates about, I think, 0.59 with measures of love of all humanity, um, but also uh, correlates very highly with the grateful personality. People that are grateful tend to notice the beauty around them, and people that notice the beauty around them tend to be grateful people. Um, and uh, so that's been some of my research. The other has been focused on uh, the moral emotion of elevation. Uh, it was a, a, a motion identified by uh, Jonathan Haidt a little over a decade ago. And it's an emotion that's associated with moral beauty. So when we see somebody do a beautiful action, something very loving or very kind or they sacrifice for truth or they stand up for justice or they show a lot of courage in the face of adversity, we think, ah, oh, that's something beautiful. And when we feel that an act by a human being is beautiful, then we begin to experience this emotion of elevation. And so I've done uh, some experiments along those lines looking at the relationship of engagement with beauty and elevation and uh, more recently inducing elevation in people and seeing if they would act more altruistically, which they do. Uh, there has been five or six studies published on that in the last three or four years showing that. Right. So I'd like to kind of go back a little bit to what you said in the beginning about the traits that people have who have the strength of appreciation of beauty. And the reason is that I've actually experienced it quite a few times that I gave the VIA survey, the strength survey, to someone and they filled it out and then they're like, what am I going to do with this? Appreciation mm -hmm. of beauty. And I'm just like, I'm like, no, it's, it's so, do you have any idea how beautiful it is to have someone around you who appreciates things? And I mean, I'm completely passionate about this, but a lot of people don't seem to see, you know, for lack of better word, a real, like daily life value of that. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> that is true. It appears to be normally distributed. <laughs> um, well, uh, that brings me to something I've been working on this last year. I, I want to uh, be more uh, action-oriented. So uh, last semester in the fall, I uh, arranged an experimental study with uh, people in control groups and comparison groups and experimental groups. And the um, experimental group, I took on weekly walks uh, through the campus where I am at Lewis Clark State and just pointed out every beautiful thing I could see, <laughs> uh, all focused on nature, plants, trees, skies, clouds, and then encouraged the students to do that with each other and with me as we walked along. And we did that weekly for 10 weeks. And then my, the uh, control group, I took them on the same walks for the same length of time, but I never mentioned beauty and didn't say anything about beauty. And uh, so basically we just had nice walks along the same path. And I was hoping to see a trait change from that, <laughs> that at least a trait change in uh, engagement with natural beauty, uh, but I didn't. Um, so the control group and com uh, experimental group stayed almost the same, but I did a follow-up a month later with them and the group that had been engaged on the beauty walks 
uh, claimed that they were still noticing beauty at a level that was twice as high as the comparison group, uh, uh, measuring them a month later. So although I didn't get trait change, there appeared to be a significant change, at least uh, in them noticing beauty, natural beauty. Right. right. Sorry, there's an echo here. No, now it disappeared. Great, thanks. Um, I, I don't know, this made me think that maybe in terms of strengths, I don't know, it seems like some can be sold, you know, better than others. For example, in the workplace, there's perseverance and, you know, like uh, people like people who persevere and or people who are leaders and all of that. But I think there's something about appreciation of beauty, which kind of maybe doesn't really fit into these definitions. It doesn't maybe lend itself that well to, you know, making money out of it in some way or the other. <laughs> and that's actually in its own way beautiful because, at least in my opinion, it seems to kind of remind us that there are things beyond, you know, making money and making it for a fun functional reason, but that there is its, its own reward to be able to notice beauty. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yes, I do. And I, I, I totally resonate to what you're saying. And uh, this is... Uh, uh, philosopher Immanuel Kant, one of the things he emphasizes, uh, beauty experience should have no utility. <laughs> we should be totally disinterested <laughs> and uh, have no further goal than experiencing the beauty itself. And uh, so I uh, appreciate what you say. And um, and that is the case. You know, uh, beauty is, um, well, I can only speak for America because it's what I'm most familiar with, but it's not a value that's important in schools. I mean, in our education, it's very seldom mentioned. I mean, you may get it in an art class, but in your general classes, I mean, are the math teachers talking about the beauty of this equation? Even though a lot of mathematicians find great beauty in various equations, but, you know, it's not mentioned in a third grade classroom about math. And... Um, and as you say, in a capitalist, well, you didn't say capitalist, but in cultures that are highly influenced by capitalism, yeah, the, uh, the only interest in beauty for making money is maybe about people's beautiful looks for television advertising, <laughs> but not much else. Which leads perfectly to the next question I wanted to ask, and that was, what do you think of this idea that we're becoming more narcissistic and we have Facebook and Instagram and plastic surgery and all of that that which seems to indicate that beauty is superficial <laughs> what do you think about that well I, I think I think we are uh, um, yeah I think we humans are right now we definitely are facing a crossroads I mean we have a lot of people that are realizing that it's not just our material affairs are in danger like climate change but um, you know our, our what our identity as good human beings is a bit in danger and but people recognize that I mean that's part of what the whole positive psychology movements about it's it's why the movement is focused on all these beautiful virtues but at the same time, it's trying to counteract forces that are highly materialistic, uh, as you said, highly narcissistic. I mean, individualist cultures are, um, uh, I hate to use the word deteriorating, but yeah, the focus on me 
is is getting uh, bigger and bigger, and this leads to more uh, alienation, more depression, more anxiety as we uh, lose our sense of community. Uh, so, yeah, I am a little worried about that. <laughs> I was actually in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago, and I was standing for a very long time in front of uh, one of an excerpts of the Quran. You know, these old, beautiful, you know, huge letters and in gold mm -hmm. with a blue background. Seriously, mm -hmm. just really, really beautiful to look at. And when I was looking at that, I was thinking about other old things, you know, like when you look at old books, they were all very artfully made. You look at old houses, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have like very ornate, you know, window sills and stuff like that. And that kind of made me think that maybe this whole preoccupation with beauty, you know, that what we think of as narcissistic, maybe it's kind of a you know a way of crying out for more beauty because now a lot of things not everything but everything seems to be constructed in such a functional way mm -hmm. so i was wondering maybe you know maybe it's not just about narcissism and you know maybe instagram and all of these things is actually a way of people saying that they crave beauty that we don't have anymore in you know buildings and forks and books and I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, there's no question in our minds, whether consciously or unconsciously, our hearts are crying out for beauty. I really think somewhere between our DNA and our soul, I mean, we, we are designed to be beauty receptors. And so when that's not happening to us, uh, we won't be flourishing. So either we either notice that and cry out about our ugly world, or we don't notice it and just cry out. And um, yeah. Right. So I'd like to shift a little bit. This was more about maybe visual beauty. So you are interested in moral and beauty. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the relationship between the two? Between moral beauty and... Between morals and beauty. Like there's this okay. idea that doing the right thing is beautiful. Right. Well, um, I guess I'd especially like to focus on, on virtue ethics. And we think about again, like uh, Peterson and Seligman's uh, Via Measure, which we've mentioned a couple times. and It's, de it's de designed around six huge virtues that they claim can be found in all the holy books and all the philosophy books of the world. I mean, they claim they're uh, virtues that were praised by Confucius, by Plato, by Jesus, by Muhammad, by the Buddha. And those six big ones are very beautiful. I mean, they're wisdom, courage, love, temperance, transcendence, justice. So from my point of view, those really are the most beautiful things in the universe. And um, uh, when we see beauty, well, I don't know, should I pause there? <laughs> no, no, please go on, go on. Getting track? No, please go so, on. So those, uh, those are the things that when we notice uh, a beautiful human being and say that that human being was beautiful we use that phrase we're usually not talking about their physical beauty we're talking about something that they just manifested in their life that was one of those six big uh, virtues that I just mentioned now how these relate to other other forms of beauty um, like natural beauty or um, artistic beauty uh, is 
a little harder to say. I mean, I have some guesses. I think I, I mentioned it earlier in the interview that I think there's a, a principle of unity and diversity or possibly an underlying principle of perfection. And so the more perfect something seems to us, we notice it's beautiful. Or when something is able to unite a diversity of aspects. So I think those those virtues do that. Like love or justice is something that uh, unifies a variety of aspects of our being. As we were mentioning earlier, uh, justice would unify our cognitive abilities, our emotional abilities, our cognitive, our, our the human will into a unity that's focused on fairness and people find that beautiful. And we say we do the same with art. If we're thinking about a Beethoven symphony or we're thinking about an impressionist painting, one of the things that we'll see underlying these is either the principle of perfection or the principle of unity and diversity. And I think they're linked in that way. Right. So like a, like some core truths, maybe they, they hint at core truths, something like that? They certainly do. All right. Okay. So what about your research in beauty that fascinates you and that we haven't really talked about yet? <sighs> well, we've ranged over quite a bit of my interests. <laughs> Um, well, one of the, <laughs> it's kind of a research question that I'm studying this semester, but as I mentioned, the measure that I've been using since about 2006 is a trait measure. And, uh, my last study in the fall where I wasn't able to, uh, even through an intervention cause a change in the trait of engagement with beauty, it made me think about, uh, state. Uh, like state as opposed to trait. We'll have a, a state of right this very moment I'm noticing and being engaged by beauty, but maybe it's not really a trait for me. So uh, over the winter, I, I developed a paper and pencil measure to try to examine states of being engaged with beauty. And now this semester I have a experimental and comparison group and I'm taking uh, the experimental group, quasi-experimental group, through a whole series of beauty experiences that um, I can then measure their state level. And my, my question will be, after like 20 or 30 sessions of elevated state beauty experience, will that lead to a change in trait beauty? So that's something that highly engages me and I'm right in the middle of doing. Right. Thank you for sharing that. So what does beauty mean to you and how, to, how do you relate it in your life? You know, maybe even outside of research and university. <clears throat> well, um, <laughs> beauty is my psychotherapy. <laughs> we we live we live in a stressful world, <laughs> and uh, I experience uh, my uh, levels of stress. And I find uh, purposely going out into nature and noticing the beauty of nature, or looking at beautiful art. Uh, which I have all through my home and my office at work, or just being with friends and engaging, I mean, just noticing the beautiful virtues in my friends, or m mindfully sitting down on a prayer rug and contemplating a beautiful idea. Uh, these are things I do daily, and uh, I, it's hard to imagine being able for me to enjoy life if I wasn't able to do that. 
which means that it has a very, very functional purpose, which well, we were before <laughs> talking about that it doesn't mean. <laughs> this is true. I do want to, didn't want to get around the idea of utility here, but, uh, but yes, it, the truth is, yes, it is highly functional. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Um, I enjoyed this conversation, Rhett. Thank you very much for coming on. It was my pleasure, Kirsten. You're a wonderful interviewer, and uh, I, really, I really enjoyed thinking these thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by sharing it with your network and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love to hear from you at kristen at strengthphoenix.com. For show notes and more, head over to www.strengths.com. P-H-O-E-N-I-X dot com. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt. Happy Yogurt.